Welcome to Humanity Shines with Shelly Nagel. This podcast features people from all walks of life, their ups and downs, and what inspires them. Today, we have Romana Fry joining us from British Columbia, Canada. She is the founder and director of Amamore Women's Foundation. Hi, Romana. Hi, Shelly. How are you? Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to ask you what inspired you to start your Women's Foundation. Well, that's a great question. The name of the foundation is Amamore Women's Foundation, and it's something that just kind of popped into my lap over the last few years. Um, but I'm going to go way back in time, about 30 years ago, when I was a young wife and mother, okay. and I had a very successful career. I had a lovely husband. We had a beautiful home. We lived this wonderful life. And from the outside, it looked like I was living a charmed life. Yeah. People saw this, you know, fairly attractive, fairly affluent family with vehicles and travel and good jobs and a happy child. But what was going on in the house, unfortunately, was not quite so charmed. So what was happening in our house was that my husband was a domestic abuser. Oh. Now, things I didn't really even know at the time was exactly what that would look like, what domestic violence or domestic abuse would look like. Mm-hmm. So let's for a minute just go back even further to my childhood. Yeah. So I grew up in a house where there was what I now know as coercive control. Uh huh. In this case, Michelle, what happened is that my mother was a narcissistic abuser. Uh huh. And my dad was the one who was being abused and controlled. And also, as the only child, I grew up in this very close environment. And I watched and learned a lot of really abusive behaviors happening. And it's just like, if you're a fish, you don't know that you're in water. Right. If you're a small child growing up in an abusive, unhealthy household, you think that's what normal is. Right. It becomes your norm. Mm -hmm. It becomes my norm. So, of course, as a young child, one would never question it because one wouldn't know any different. Right. The things that my mother would do, um, she was very verbally abusive to my father, uh, name calling, putting him down, you know, while we were at home and also in front of other people. Um, in the public? Like, oh, yeah, in front of friends and things. Yeah. Um, she wanted to control everything about him, be that what his haircut was like, what clothes he wore. Yikes. He ate what he did with his time, you know, even when he went to the bathroom, um, you know, it was really, really, really controlling, as I know. What do you mean going to the bathroom? Can you elaborate on that? For sure. So, you know, if you have a child, um, you might remind that child, oh, you know, you haven't gone to the bathroom for a while. Maybe you should go to the bathroom. Uh-huh. 
but my dad was in his 40s Mm-hmm. And my mom was basically treating him like a young child, saying, oh, you know, you have to go to the bathroom in a while. Maybe you should go to the bathroom. So, ooh, not just at home, but also, you know, in front of in front of other people. Wow. So, of course, as a child, one kind of absorbs this mm-hmm. as normal. And um, the interesting thing, though, is that my mom also tried to treat me the same way but with something about me right from the get-go that just wasn't going to have any of it so I was very rebellious at times yeah it seemed like I kind of picked my battles you know sometimes I knew I had to go along and and do what she wanted but other times um it was just not going to go her way at all no matter what kind of punishment I would be facing so you can imagine then as I went out into the world and, you know, started to make friends and go to school um, and then start dating, I would have a very high tolerance for what other people might think of as dysfunction. Right. Right. So right from the get-go, um, the kind of boy that I was attracted to and were attracted to me, I see now in hindsight, were not very healthy boys, very healthy families. I think back to my very first boyfriend. Uh, he was a couple years older than I was. I was about 14, 15. And um, I really had no idea that I had the agency to say no. Right. To what someone wanted to do to me or with me. And so he was constantly pressuring me to have sex. Uh-huh. Every time we saw each other, he would have a condom in his wallet. He would pull it out and say, oh, you know, maybe today's the day. How old were you? About 15. 15. He was 15. So again, if if I heard that now about someone else's daughter, I would be horrified. Right. You know, that's that's pressure. That's sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. It has to be stopped. But unfortunately, you know, it just kind of seemed normal. And I would just mm-hmm. say no today you know maybe tomorrow but he also had a huge rage problem mm-hmm. and um you know again i wasn't able to see something like red flags or, or right at that time so we would be out for a walk and he would get really upset and he would take his fists and start pounding the wooden street light poles you know those big logs yeah you know, his knuckles were bloody, you know, and it was just like, well, whatever. Um, it just never even registered as something that would cause fear in me or cause, you know, me to end the relationship. So you weren't alarmed that his he was no. making up his knuckles and they'd just be no. gushing blood? No, because, yeah. you know, he was physically violent with me. And I just, again, thought that right. I'm the fish in that water where this happened this is normal this is when I grew up around right yeah and um so I ended up getting married quite young again I ended up in a relationship that was very much like what my parents had except that my husband tried to be very controlling of me right and um you know we know how that works um sometimes I went along with it many times I fought back and yeah. then 
Um, I was only 24 when I ended that relationship. Okay. So that's kind of my backstory. Right. Now we're back where it looks like I'm living a charmed life. With your husband? Was this a husband and your child? Husband, my child was three. And it's interesting that when I had the child, um, you know, it was really important that my child not experience the same types of things that I had experienced. So there was much more awareness then. I was much more on the lookout. I didn't want my child to be hurt in any way by, you know, any family members or, or anyone else. And after we had moved to this new community, um, we're settling in, and, and I just really noticed that the dynamic in the relationship between my husband, myself, and my child, it was changing, and it was just not feeling right. Yeah. Um, and again, at some sense, I knew that I would be okay with anything. I could handle anything, but I didn't want my child to be exposed to anything. Right. So what I saw then happening was um, my husband started to become very passive aggressive. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, he would do little things on purpose that caused me to be stressed, bored. So, for example, um, you know, he would take on and leave my son at someone's house and then go out uh-huh. and moment I would not know where he was or where my son was um, you know and this was kind of before cell phones so it was really upsetting not to know where my son was right it sounds like he was playing games with you like very scary games yeah so again you know in a normal relationship I guess what happens is if the husband is feeling stressed or unhappy or has an issue there would be communication right that's what the passive aggressive is. Someone showing you that they're unhappy with something, but not dealing with it directly. Yeah. So that behavior of his kind of accelerated and it got to the point where it even seemed like he was trying to, um, you know, make things more difficult for my career and just kind of not only not being supportive, but being unsupportive. Right. And um, the first time it really was odd was we, he had, uh, he was part of the volunteer to fire department and he had a huge alarm for fires right in our bedroom. And it would click all night. It was on a timer. And then if the alarm would go off, it would be so loud, um, you know, and then I would wake up with a start. And, you know, we really shaky and I would say, we please not have this in the bedroom. Right. That's a light sleeper. Mm-hmm. And I would put it out in the hall. Yeah. And by that night, he would have put it back beside the bed. And so it went back and forth, back and forth. And it just seemed like, you know, it didn't matter if I couldn't sleep. All that mattered was that he hear the alarm. Right. Right. So things got a little bit tenser. Um, and then... The main thing that happened was we were having a verbal fight one day and um, my son came running to me. Um, you know, my husband and I, our voices were raised. My son came running to me and my husband got very angry. He threw a glass at us 
sadder. And then, of course, my son is screaming and uh, my husband's trying to rip my son out of my arms and take him, you know, and my son's screaming. Um, my, my husband started punching the wall. Yeah. So, as I said before, if it had just been me, it probably wouldn't have, you know, been out of the ordinary. It would have been fine. But I immediately saw that this could be danger to my son. Right. Yeah. So, um, immediately went to see a lawyer to see how I could get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. My husband to leave. And he didn't want to leave. Right. Yeah. And, and as we'll hear in a few minutes, this is such a common occurrence. They always say the woman should leave. The woman should leave, go to family and friends, go to a transition house. And the abuser just gets to stay in the home and kind of not be punished for their behavior. So anyway, he wouldn't leave. Um, and since I was also running my business out of my home, I ended up getting myself a little office downtown for my business. And I found a little apartment for my son and myself mm-hmm. and moved out. You know, and here again, I mean, it's so unfair. Like, why should the child have to leave their home? Right. You know, why, why should the child not be able to stay in the family home? Um, so it, it just creates a whole bunch of trauma and drama that's not really necessary. Right. So anyway, um, that was fine. And, um, my husband seems to be okay with the breakup. He didn't seem too upset. Mm-hmm. About two weeks later, he came to the new apartment and he wanted to talk to me. So we were talking a little bit and he started raising his voice and I said, mm, you know what? I'm not going to talk like this in front of our son. Mm-hmm. What is back later at night and we can have a conversation. So he came back later that night and, um, you know, he was begging me to come back and he'd go to counseling and everything would be fine. And I just said, no, you know, gotten this far um i'm i'm not just gonna come right back like i've gone to considerable expense um you know and this is very hard but this is the way it is so he became very angry um and he stormed out the door and his last words were you cold unfeeling bitch and then he won the door so there i was he went storming off in his truck and I remember that I had this flash in my mind. I hope he doesn't drive off the road. Ah, interesting. Uh, well, you know what? There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to go to bed. Um, and so I just went to bed. And Is he a self-destructive person by nature? Well, you know, no, he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. So it was even odd, Shelley, that I had that thought. Yeah. Because it it would just he was a he was a registered nurse right so he was very caring and you know and never self destructive at all actually so that's a really good point so in the morning um, taking my son to daycare and then me going to work I was supposed to stop at our house to pick something up uh-huh. but it's one of those things again where it's just like we're running late you know we're zooming down the road. And this moment of clarity, it's like, should I stop? Should I keep going? And then I just thought, oh, we don't have time. So I just kept going. Uh-huh. I get to my office and there's a very teary message from my husband. Um, 
saying he was sorry, um, you know, that he loved us so much, but he couldn't live without us. And so I called the police uh-huh. and uh, they already said that they'd received a call about the house and they were already someone up there doing a wellness check. So within an hour, I knew that my husband had taken his life, which is an acceleration of violence. You know, we go from the punching walls and throwing things mm-hmm. uh, to either self-harm or harming others. And what I didn't know at the time is that the two weeks around the end of a relationship were the most dangerous for the woman. And the children. Interesting. So even though, of course, um, someone taking their own life, you know, it's very sad and tragic and heartbreaking. Um, at the same time, it could have been much worse. Right. Do you feel like if you would have stopped by that day that he might have, did he use a gun on himself? No, he didn't use a gun. At, and, and when we were to stop by, he was already dead. So we would have found him. You would have found him with your son. Yeah. Um, um, he used the old method of putting a hose into the exhaust pipe. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And he did, he, you know, he was very sure that this was what he wanted because he had towels in the window cracks to make sure no air would get in. Wow. And, um, he had photos of my son and me beside him on the bench. And, you know, it, it was just so horrifying to think that it would have been so easy for him to do that with my son right there with him in the car seat. Right. You know? So, one, of course, I'm mourning and grieving and in shock. Right. And at the same time, there's also this sense of like, oh my God, this could have been so much worse. Right. Or if that happens, right? Right. So you could have taken your son. Or, or, bo- or both of us, both of you. Three of us, or, you know, that's why they call it, you know, femicide, suicide, or. Right. Yeah. So that's basically where my whole life changed. Mm-hmm. And, um, it took a few years. Um, I went back to school. I started working in the human services profession, which I was managing a transition house society. I was managing a women's center. I was doing a lot of work with um, life skill coaching, women who had experienced abuse, women with disabilities, First Nations people, youth, you name it. And, um, you know, always in the back of my mind was, of course, what had happened to me. And, mm-hmm. you know, why, why did it have to turn out that way? Why did we have to leave? Um, you know, why why hadn't I known more about what domestic violence was? Right. Or what a safety plan was or what the dangers were? Um, you know, it, it really seemed odd because I was successful in my career right um you know respected in the community and there was this huge gap Mm -hmm. street smarts Mm -hmm. 
And, and you know, I, I didn't keep it a secret. I, I talked to people about it, and then I would hear more and more stories about other women who had experienced mm -hmm. or were experiencing abuse and, um, you know, seeing the day-to-day -day life in the transition house. Mm -hmm. You know, women and children fleeing from one very frightening, uh, terrifying place to another place where they're just re-traumatized by being with other people mm -hmm. who are traumatized, you know, and, and hearing what the effects were on children, mm -hmm. um, you know, fleeing and being in transition houses and, um, you know, the lack of services or the lack of housing. Um, so it was just one of those things, Shelley, that was just always kind of like burring in the back of my mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would talk to friends and I would read articles and, um, yeah, I was just kind of sitting there and, you know, I thought maybe someday I'll do something with it, but who knows? Who knows? So about five years ago, I was living in Vienna, Austria. Oh. And, um, yeah, I used to do quite a bit of blogging about social justice issues when I was living in different places in Europe. Um, uh, you know, I was interested in what other communities and countries did about homelessness, yeah, drug addiction and domestic violence and all those topics. Um, because it happens everywhere. It's just different it does. different interventions and solutions. Right. So while I was there, I came across something called um the Austrian intervention. And oh. the, what this was the domestic violence intervention was is that things were set up so that the woman and the children were supported to stay safely in their homes and the perpetrator abuser was removed. Oh. And so it was just it was just like one of those aha moments. It's, yeah. Duh. I mean, of course, that's how it should be. It looked right. right. So I put on my research hat, <laughs> did a deep dive, and it, it's lucky that I'm bilingual. I, I speak and read German as well. So I was able to read all the original documentation in German and the whole history of how it took many years yeah. to get to where they were and um, the different steps that they went to and the different laws that had to be changed. Uh-huh. And all the different um, agency responses had to be changed, and the way the legal system and policing acted, plus the services that were provided had to be changed. So, you know, I was just really, really excited to learn all this uh, about it. And then when I came back to Canada, um, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And so here I was. I live on Salt Spring Island, which is one of the Gulf Islands, kind of near Seattle and Vancouver. Ooh. Fine, yeah. And nobody was going anywhere. Everything was shut down. Yeah. So it just uh, became a time where I could just think about what I wanted to do next. Right. And um didn't look like things were going to open up anytime soon. So I went back to the research that I had done about the Austrian intervention. And then I started looking into how things were actually done in Canada and to see if things had changed at all in the domestic violence sector 
mm-hmm. since I had my experience many years ago. And um, I love research. I mean, yeah. It just, it was just such a fascinating deep dive into looking at, you know, what's been done in Canada, how every different province here has different regulations and practices. And even in the province that I'm here in British Columbia, yeah, uh, the huge difference between urban and rural interventions. So, as I said, I live on this island. And there's a group of islands called the Gulf Islands. So there's about yeah. eight different islands uh, with a population of about 25,000. Wow. Long. And there's one agency on the main island here where I am that runs a transition house and programs and services for domestic violence survivors. Okay. So I, um, you know, started doing some chatting with them. And really figuring out what it is that I thought should happen. And then what kind of an organization I would need to start to get the ball rolling with that. So basically, it ended up um, my interest being in the intersection between domestic violence, housing, security, and homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that hasn't really been looked at before in that particular land very much. Yeah. Um, you know, most of this it's about homelessness in Canada and I think in the United States too are mostly men. Oh, interesting. Okay. A lot of perhaps mental Ill, mental illness or neurodiversity or physical disability mm-hmm. and you know, the women and children, it's kind of like a hidden grouping. Uh-huh. You know, they may not be living on the streets or in tents, but they may be couch surfing uh-huh. or, you know, having to return home to the abuser just because the shelters are full. Right. Right. And again, I know this happens everywhere, but on a small island, if you've got kids in school, you know, you can't leave the island and go to a shelter somewhere else. You're pretty well stuck staying here, and if you have fine clothing, well, you're going to end up back with with the abuser. So, um, pulled together a group of women, be the founding board of directors. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, we we got to work pretty quickly. We first we incorporated as a nonprofit. Uh huh. Simple. You just do the name registration. File the papers of incorporation, and then we immediately applied for charitable status, which means that we're allowed to give tax receipts for donations. So if someone donates to us, we give them a receipt, and then they can claim that on their income tax. And I think that's what is it called in the states? There's a, um, a different kind of name for that kind of organization in the states that can do that. But in but in Canada, we just call it a a registered charity. That's great. Yeah. Um, and then we got the website up and, you know, it happened so quickly after just one year, we had pretty well laid the groundwork and we were ready to start thinking about where to focus our mm-hmm. first grant. So 
the kind of grant that we're allowed to give is we're allowed to give a grant to another organization that's going to carry out the work. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So we were able to cobble together $25,000 the first oh. organization. That's yeah. so cool. And um, we decided to do some, with our first $25,000, we decided to use a different type of granting strategy uh-huh. called collaborative granting. So in a traditional grant, the organization says, okay, here's $25,000 and this is what we want you to do. Yeah. And then the organization says, gee, thanks. And then they do that. And then they report back to the funder, but it may not be exactly what was needed by that organization. Yeah. So what we decided to do is to work collaboratively. So we decided to work with Islanders Working Against Violence right here on Salt Spring Island. And we met with them and we said, okay, we want to work with you. We want you to tell us in in the area of domestic violence, homelessness, and housing security, how you could best use this money, right? Uh-huh. I said, wow. Well, they said, we, we do have a project that we've been thinking about for quite some time. Ooh. able to get funding for it. So we said, okay, well, write it up and then we'll discuss it. Yeah, that's exactly what it was that they had been wanting to do. And we had some discussions about it. And basically, it was just tweaked a little bit so that it would fit into our mandate. Um, and so we awarded them the check, which was a really exciting moment for me. Yes. Something come to fruition so quickly and to be so well received. And just to see a tiny step being taken mm-hmm. towards it. So, you know, we had that short-term goal. And then we've got the long-term goal of changing legislation. But we know that that's far down the line. But we know that this is the first step towards it. So it's been really exciting. Um, we meet with the representatives from this organization once a month. And, again, it's not like a usual second meeting where... We just want results. Um, we we want to see so many different things. We want to see how this way of grant making is working. Mm-hmm. First time for them, first time for us. So in that way, it's kind of a pilot project. Mm-hmm. Just working it out and always communicating. Um, you know, there are some things that I have more experience with and there's some things that they have more experience with. So it's able to, you know, all of our experience to move it forward. Yeah, so collaboration. Exactly. So the first part, um, they put a bit of research to find out, you know, what kind of studies had been done into these specific topics and what lenses and, um, you know, what was happening in other countries that we could draw from, including Austria. Yeah. And, you know, what we want to do is document it very well because what we're doing now is going to be used to apply for further funding down the road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything's got to be, you know, well-reported and, and written up and planned. And now we're in our second stage, and she has already put together a group of people from different community organizations mm-hmm. and individuals, and we're looking at using this particular type of community action research mm-hmm. where the community is involved 
in making the project as well. Wow. So it's super exciting because that gets a lot of buy-in from community members and community organizations that they actually get to help decide how this is going to go. Wow. I love it. Yeah. And what we're looking at is including art. Oh. So because we'll be working with women who, you know, experience domestic violence and housing issues, um, the art will be to help create a more, um, you know, more kind, open, safe environment yeah. where you can just talk and share their stories, um, you know, just ask some questions and to hopefully build a little bit of peer group. So there are so many things happening there at so many different levels. Right. And so, so creating a support network as well. Exactly. And then that support group, um, you know, then they can create their own peer support group. And then, you know, even then that'll be a model for other women who are in the community that maybe are afraid of reaching out to the agency, but they may somebody that's in this peer group. So, you know, it's all about creating the community um, and having involvement, you know, from as many people in, in the grassroots as possible. Ah, that's incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Very, very exciting. Well, very exciting. I, I'm going to put all your information in the show notes. So if anyone wants to reach out or connect with you and, you know, you're doing incredible work. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for coming on. Oh, 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 oh,